The Kennedy Paradox, Chapter 7. Northern Hemisphere, Winter, Late Morning, Location Unknown. Cold air brought him to consciousness, like a slowly developing photograph inside a shaded barrier. Moistened maple leaves, bordered by a foot of snow, melted at the edges, gradually surrounded him. The area remained shaded as the energy slowly diminished and the bubble barrier separated him from the outside world. At first he felt the cold breeze. Hardwood trees, branches bare to the blue sky, followed a rock-strewn slope to the adjacent ridges. Water droplets dripped from the branches. A squirrel quickly scurried up a maple, dove off the upper branches and soared to a neighboring tree. Several blue jays darted through the winter air as a flock of geese formed an arrow-shaped formation over a distant ice-covered pond. He stood and cupped his hands. His voice echoed down the slope toward the hills beyond. Kate! Kate! Alone in the forest with an occasional wind burst, sometimes moving through the frozen boughs and branches, his exact location remained obscure, but hope beckoned with a dissipating campfire or chimney smoke meandering through the forest. He zipped his camouflage jacket and started down the snow-hardened slope. Hey! Hey! He reached an ice cake stream where the slopes converged and placed his boot on the slick rocks. The stream, like time itself, narrowly cascaded over the smooth rocks, golden in the winter light. Smoke, now heavier in the clean air, lured him forward as he carefully tiptoed over the slippery boulders to the far riverbank. Kate's location eluded him as the hours dragged on with no sign of a trail in the pristine snow. At worst, she might not have survived the embarking chamber. He balanced like a gymnast along the angled slope. His ears stung as he now placed his hands under his warmer armpits and followed the smoke scent. He scurried toward the ridges ahead. At midday, the sunlight pushed through the evergreen branches and the hill shadows darkened the stream. The creek wound into a brighter forested canyon ahead. When he climbed onto the thin rock ledge, he gazed at the water cascading toward a rolling plain. Beyond the plain, the snow-sprinkled mountains rimmed the horizon. He paralleled a weathered rock between the hardwoods. The ground slowly leveled into a field with yellow-cut corn stalks stuck solid in the snow. Like he had in high school track, Patch hurtled the next stone wall and landed in the field. A singular white plume from a long shed billowed into the cloudless air at the far end of the field. His boots crunched the snow as he marched toward the shed. With each stride, his thoughts centered on Kate in retrograde. Near the edge of the field, the silver maple trees spiked with metal spigots dipped infinitesimal droplets into hanging galvanized buckets. A white farmhouse and a weathered wood barn rose like the morning sun behind the elongated wood shed. Steam burst out the rear windows and dissipated into the cold air as men in denim overalls scurried in and out of the shed. Along the muddy yard, one of the men removed a tool from a shiny cherry red Dodge pickup and then proceeded into the shed. In his military fatigues and terrain jacket, Patch trudged across the matted snow. Smoke gushed out the shed's black stovepipe and settled across the yard. Through the shed's open doors, the steam ascended from the long metal vats and a rich maple odor 
inundated the air. A lanky man, about his age, in a red plaid shirt looked up from the vat. He wiped his forehead with a navy handkerchief and walked outside. You all right, mister? I think so. He extended his warm, firm hand. Hey, Wilton Jeffries. Patch spoke quickly. Captain Robert Kincaid. Captain. Jeffries guided him into the moist warm air. Your, your plane crash or something, Captain? We were on a training flight last night. I got my signals crossed and bailed out, Mr. Jeffries. I need to get to my unit. Well, damn. I landed in the hills. I estimated 50 miles from the drop-off point, said Patch, pointing across the field. I've been outside for four or five hours. Oh, you're damn lucky you weren't out there during the nor'easter. You have a phone? Sure. Must be looking for you by now, Captain. Maybe. Jeffries motioned him forward. Patch stepped onto the wet floorboards and walked behind the men working in the vats. Jeffries sent him into a side office. A black rotary phone lay atop an invoice stack on an oak roll-top desk. You're welcome to the phone, Captain. Get back to your unit. They'll think you're AWOL. Got that right, he said, rubbing his hands. Patch lifted the receiver as Jeffries wandered back to the vats. He put his index finger into the rotary dial and tried Mankiewicz's Sector 13 office number. The dial clicked each number in slow motion and he grinned. Speed or auto-dialing had not yet reached this area. But the earpiece produced an odd series of tones. Then an operator asked him for the number he dialed, claiming he had dialed too many digits, and she wanted him to explain the Colorado area code. Frustrated, he sat on the desk as he tried to explain. As he looked at a photograph of a bright red fire engine and firehouse located in Centerville, Vermont, he loosened his grip on the phone. On the calendar, days crossed off in pencil indicated today's date. Friday, February 24th, 1961. He gently set the receiver back on the hook, no longer upset with the operator, and carefully touched the calendar. Going back a few weeks would have allowed him to contact Mankiewicz. Then the intelligence community could launch an assault on the funeral house gang or on any related terrorist organizations. Measures would be taken to prevent the catastrophic events. In 1961, Mankiewicz, a young man, lived in a country where John F. Kennedy had just won the November election. Jeffries popped his head in the side office. You get through all right? Yeah, I mean, no, not yet. I have to find it. Hey, listen, uh, let my wife fix you something to eat. Patch nodded and followed Jeffries from the office. But he turned one more time and looked back at the 1961 calendar. How would he find Minkowitz now? He staggered from the steam into the cold air. Jeffries led him across the hardened dirt tracks near some roving chickens and they climbed the farmhouse's back steps. Jeffries opened the scuffed door and they stepped into a warm hallway. The smell of ham and potatoes wafted into the hall. Jeffries chuckled as he put his hand on Patch's shoulder. You just might be a little hungry, eh, Captain? A little. Patch grinned and brushed his feet on the matted rug. He followed Jeffries into a sweltering kitchen with foggy windows and a number of pots boiling on a cast iron stove. A young woman, large framed and wearing a flowery dress and apron, walked from the living room as a soap opera played on the bulky Emerson black and white TV in the corner. 
Wilton, you have a military guest? Becky, this is Captain Kincaid. He wandered off from his unit. Patch lightly shook Becky's hand. Ma'am, you're going to catch yourself the death of coal, Captain, out there with no protection? Just like President Kennedy giving his inaugural speech last month in that freezing Washington weather. No hat, no coat. Patch stared at the yellow-framed wall-mounted clock above the sink and studied the minute hand's perpetual movement forward. President Kennedy? Well, I voted for Nixon, said Jeffries. He had the experience, although Eisenhower didn't say that. Everyone said he lost them debates. I listened to one of them coming back from New York. Yeah, that's where we were, Becky. Nixon won it hands down. Becky stirred one of the pots. They said Nixon looked bad on TV. Who cares about how you look? I think my wife voted for Kennedy. She ain't saying, but he swooned her. I know he did. Well, I'm not telling. That's between me and the voting booth. She smiled broadly. Can I get you some chicken soup, Captain? Soup would hit the spot. It's cold out there. Patch joined Jeffries, washing his hands at the ceramic sink. He wondered how long he could remain back here before retrograde ripped him back to 1986. How would the Mankiewicz of 1961, now younger than Patch, change the events in 1986? At the round oak table, Becky, like a waitress in a hometown restaurant, served the steamy soup with heavy, thick dumplings and chicken chunks. She set his black coffee on the table. A desperate, sinking inner feeling filled his gut as he sipped the broth off the oversized spoon and dreaded Kate had not survived the trip back in time. Then he brought the hot coffee to his lips. As Becky talked with Jeffries, his eyes wandered from the yellow and black wallpaper to the old white sink and back to the soup. He had no money, no way to get money, and he sat in military fatigues at some kitchen table in rural Vermont. His life consisted of a fabricated story about losing his unit. All his conversations with Mankiewicz could not help shake loose his mentor's location in February 1961. The ever-present threat of being retrograded back to Bonheim and Carlos Sanchez at Sector 13 resided in his consciousness like a corrosive acid.